Colossians 1, 15-23, hear the word of the Lord. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He is now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. If in the middle of a sermon or a letter or a conversation, I came out all of a sudden with something like, Immortal, invisible, God only wise, in light inaccessible, hid from our eyes, Most blessed, most glorious, the Ancient of Days, Almighty Victorious, Thy great name we praise. You would probably say, I don't think you just made that up. It sounds like you're quoting something. That doesn't sound like you. That sounds more like a hymn, or a song, or a poem, or a creed of some sort of uh, nature that, that you're quoting. And so when we get to this text today, we notice something similar like that. As we've been going along, it sounds like a letter from Paul and Timothy to the church in Colossians. But then all of a sudden, the tone changes in verse 15, and it sounds very much like they are quoting something. And it's often called a hymn, a hymn to Christ. And it looks like either this was something they composed, or more likely, there was a hymn that was circulating in the church a hymn about the sun, and they inserted this hymn here as a, a poetic, uh, uh, an artistic way of talking about the sun. Now, you will perhaps recall, if you've been here uh, for the first couple sermons, that there is emphasis on the Father in the first 14 verses. And there is one mention of the Holy Spirit and perhaps an indirect mention of the Holy Spirit when he talks about spiritual wisdom. But then there is a pivot in verses 13 and 14. It says that He, that is the Father, God the Father, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And this is the author's pivot. This is the author's transition to the main theme of this letter. The main theme of this letter is the Son. And so we're going to be hearing much about the Son. And before they go on in in talking about the various things that are going on in the church, 
they insert what looks like this, this hymn or this creed or this poem about the sun. Now, the, the structure of this hymn, uh, there are probably as many proposals about the structure of this hymn as there are people proposing. Uh, because it's a very rich and, and rather complicated and beautifully structured, but it's, there's so many connections that it's a little bit hard to figure out how it's put together. But one that convinces me is that there are two verses. There are two verses. And it's not, not as obvious in our, our English translation, but he mentions the Son in verse 13. And then at the beginning of verse 15, our translation says, He is, in order not to have a run-on sentence, but actually it is, Who is? So the Son, Who is? And then uh, partway through 18, where it says, He is the beginning, it's the second time it says, who is. So twice it says, who is, and then it describes him, and who is. So it looks like there are two sections there. And the first section focuses on creation, that he is the agent of creation. And then, who is, beginning in the second part of verse 18, he is the agent of reconciliation as well. And then there is something of a very, very, uh, very clever and very creative and artistic pivot in verses 17 and the first part of 18 that sum up the first part and introduce the second part. So are you with me? So two verses and then a transition between these two verses. The transition sums up the first part and then introduces us to the second part. And I hope that will become clear as we go along. But it begins with the idea, who is, who is in verse 15, the image of the invisible God. Now, what is it about an image? An image is something that is visible. So even though it's redundant, we could say, who is the Son, who is the visible image of the invisible God. So, the invisible God, obviously you cannot see the invisible God. But the image of the invisible God is visible to us. This is similar to what John says at the beginning of his gospel, John 1.18. No one has ever seen God. Why is that? Because he's invisible, among other reasons. But then, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And we know who that only God is here. That's the Word who became flesh. So this is very similar. So God invisible in and of Himself, impossible to see, but we see Him because He has given us His image, His visible image. And then, as way of describing the, the visible image of the invisible God, for the first of two times in this, this section, this hymn, the authors call Him the firstborn. In verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. The firstborn of all creation. We'll see the firstborn again. But this this statement, the firstborn of all creation, is the favorite verse of many people. It's the favorite verse of heretics, both ancient and modern. And some will come to your door, and they will point you to this verse. And they will say... This proves that the Son was created. Because firstborn means He was the first in a series. So He was the first creature. He was the first one created. And that, if that phrase were taken out of its context, it could mean that. It could mean that. 
But it's impossible that it means that in this context. Because we will keep reading and we will discover that the context says he cannot be the first of the creatures because all the creatures came about because of him. And so um, it's impossible that it means that. So what could it mean? If you look at Scripture, another idea of the firstborn is that the firstborn is the heir of all things. So what is the the firstborn of creation? He is the heir of all creation. He is the, the one who is over all creation. He is the owner of all creation. And we will see how he describes this firstborn. The explanation for the firstborn... It begins in verse 16. He is the visible image of the invisible God, the firstborn we could translate over all creation. And then he focuses on, the author's focus on creation and that God performed creation. He created, and here we have three phrases, in Him, through Him, and for him. So, God created creation in the Son, through the Son, and for the Son. Now, in our translation, it's not as, as obvious. Uh, verse 16 says, for by Him, that's actually in Him, and this is not a, a bad interpretation here, um, to say that he it was by him, but it seems to me that that's redundant because later he's going to say that they were created through him. And so if you translate it by him, through him, that's about the same thing. And it looks like this is saying something different. The question is, what is it saying? What does it mean that all creation was made in him? Well, probably something like this that all creation was made in relation to the Son, in reference to the Son. There is nothing that was made that is not was not made in reference to the Son, in relation to the Son. So everything was in, in Him, in reference to Him. And the second expression is through Him. And that emphasizes that the created things came about by means of Him. Not only in reference to Him, but by means of Him. This sounds very much like John, again, the beginning of the Gospel of John, verse 3. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So, in Him, in reference to Him, in relation to Him, through Him as the agent of all things being created. And the third one is... For Him. For Him. He is the purpose of creation. If we ask the question, why did God create the universe? The answer that we're being given here is, for His Son. That's why He made everything that He made. For His Son. It is all the Father's gift to the Son. And that fits with the idea that He is the heir of all things. Why did He make it all? He made it as a gift to His Son. So we have in Him, through Him, for Him. Now, the amplification here, this expression, all things, is repeated throughout this section. The firstborn of all creation, for by Him all things were created. 
And then all things were created through Him. And then there's this amplification here. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Now, why this amplification? Well, a couple of reasons. One, so that we know that all things means all things. Exactly. Nothing is excluded from this. Nothing visible, nothing invisible, nothing on heaven, nothing on earth. And then he piles up this description of the the powers and calls them thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities. And we are going to get later... This is a little bit of a preview, but we see that they're anticipating what was going on in the church of Colossae. There was some confusion among the Christians in Colossae about the role of the angels. And it looks like some of them were were thinking of the angels in a way that was higher than they should. And they were raising up the angels and thereby lowering the sun. And so before we get to the the controversial, the polemical part of this letter, in this poem, everybody's getting put in their place. The angels, whether they be thrones or dominions or powers or authority, why do they exist? From where did they come? They are in the Son. They were created through the Son. And they exist for the Son. So they are put in their place here and the Son is put in His place as well. And then we have the transition. That's the first emphasis here, the the creation. And then we have the transition. Verse 17. And He is before. He is pro all things. He is before all things. And so here's the answer when somebody knocks on your door and says, look, He's the firstborn of all creation. He's the first creature. Well, verse 17 says, He was before creation. He was before all of these created things, so He cannot be part of of creation. He's before all things. And we get new information in this transition. And in Him all things hold together. Not only the agent of the, 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 the genesis of creation, the, the creating of creation, but He is also actively the one that holds all things together. In one of my first Bibles might have been my very first Bible after becoming a Christian. It was a a youth leader. He pointed that verse out to me. And he said, this is how atoms stay together. And I wrote in my Bible. I looked for it yesterday. I couldn't find that Bible. I think I still have it. But I wrote in that Bible, the sun holds the atoms together. And that was probably... A, maybe a simplistic idea of a, a new Christian, but the more I read about atoms, and the more I read about protons, and the more I read about quarks and gluons and whatever else might be in there, the more I'm convinced that that's right. Because this is mysterious. Why do not these things fly apart? Because the sun holds them together. He is holding the universe together. Not only did it come about in Him, through Him, for Him, but He's actively holding it together now. And then, in the second part of that transition, we we have the intro. So He sums up the first part, and now He gives the intro to the second part. In verse 18, And He is the head. 
He is the head of the body. And then they clarify the church. The church. Now, for us, this might be a little anticlimactic. We've just been talking about thrones and dominions and authorities and heaven and earth. And now we're going to talk about the church. And the reason that seems anticlimactic to us is because we don't understand the church. We tend to think that the church is a small concern of God in reference to all the other great cosmic concerns that He has. But we will find in Colossians that the church is, is, the, is the purpose. In addition to the creation, the church is the purpose of what the Son is doing. The church is the arena. The church is where He conducts His activity. It is not a, a small concern. In fact, eventually, if we could say it this way, eventually creation and church are going to become the overlapping same thing. He, he is moving these things together, but I get ahead of myself. <laughs> so now we're, we're transitioning into the arena of the church, which is the arena of reconciliation. So He's the agent of creation, and the Son is also the agent of reconciliation. And we have the second, who is... Who is? Who is the image of the invisible God? Verse 15, second part of verse 18. Who is the beginning? The beginning. The beginning could be translated the ruler or the chief. But, but here, by translating it beginning, this should remind us of some verses. The very first verse of the Bible says what? In, in the beginning. In the beginning. And it says, He is the beginning. And then the first First verse of, of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so this, this calls to our remembrance this He is the beginning. He is the, the genesis of all things. And for the second time, He's called the firstborn. He's called the firstborn here. He is the beginning, the firstborn from or of the dead ones. Of the dead ones. The dead here is, is plural. Of the dead ones. Now, um, here, what does firstborn mean? We saw in the first section that it could not mean first in a series, right? Because the context militates against that idea that he is first in the series of created things. So we, we, we rejected that interpretation of this idea of firstborn. But now what about firstborn among the dead ones? What could it possibly mean? Well, we, we look to the context, and we look to the wider context of Scripture, and we read a similar expression in 1 Corinthians 15.20 that says He is the first fruits of the dead ones. The first fruits. The first one to, to, to blossom from among the dead ones. The first of the harvest from among the dead ones. So it looks like the emphasis here on firstborn is not so much the heir of all the dead ones, but he is the first in a series. And is that legitimate to take the same word and interpret it in two different ways? And the answer is yes, if the context demands that we do that. We're not, we're not playing loose with the word here. Rather, we're looking at the context. Because it's very clear that he was not the first in a series of creatures because he was not a creature. He's the creator. But can we say that he is the first in the series of the dead ones 
to rise from the dead, we can say yes. We can say yes, he rose from the dead. Now, it's, it's interesting to note here that it says that the purpose of him being the firstborn from among the dead ones is that in everything he might be preeminent. Preeminent. It's the only time that this word appears in the, in the New Testament. Preeminent. Overall. Above all things. And this is fascinating. Because in the first, the first verse of this hymn, it says that he is preeminent. He is over all things. And now it says that the goal of his dying and rising again and being the first fruits or the first born of creation is that he might be preeminent. So which is it? Is he preeminent eternally? Or will he be preeminent because of his death and resurrection? And the answer to that, of course, is absolutely yes. Yes. So not only eternally, because of who He is eternally, is He preeminent. But because He has died, because He has risen from the dead, He will be preeminent in all things. And now we have, once again, and this is the, the amazing beauty of this, this hymn, we have once again the repetition of in Him, through Him, and to Him. In Him, through Him, and to Him. Verses 19 and 20. For in Him... All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Actually, it just says, we fill in of God. Actually, it just says, for in Him, all the fullness was pleased to dwell. But this translation is right on. It's the fullness of what? It's the fullness of whom? It's the fullness of God. That the fullness of God was pleased to take up His dwelling, to establish His dwelling in the Son. God was also pleased to reconcile all things, verse 20, here's the second phrase, through Him, verse 20, and through Him to reconcile to Himself, what things? All things. And in case you're wondering what that all things consists of, whether on earth or in heaven. So, in Him, the fullness of God dwelling, through Him, reconcile all things. And then there is... To him as well. Verse 20. Reconcile to him. It's translated here to himself. And I'm not sure what the best translation here is. Is it reconcile to Jesus, to him, or reconcile God to himself? It's left a little bit ambiguous here. So it could mean reconcile to the Son, or more likely, probably as it's translated here, reconcile to himself all things. Now, this reconciliation. This reconciliation that's mentioned here, he further describes, or they further describe, or this hymn further describes, as a peacemaking effort. That's what reconciliation is, isn't it? Peace, making peace by the blood of His cross. So this reconciliation makes peace between God and what? All things. All things. Heavenly and earthly. So this the means of this cosmic reconciliation. He's not just talking about individual. He's talking about a cosmic reconciliation of all things is the death of His Son on the cross. Now I want you to notice that there are two realities that are assumed, that are assumed in this hymn. And uh, those two realities are these. One is that the Son became a human being. 
It doesn't state that explicitly, but it assumes that because it mentions the, the death on the cross and it mentions the, the, the resurrection from the dead. And so, so how does the Son die and rise again? Only by, by taking on flesh. And, and where did that, that fullness of God dwell? It dwelt in the, the human Jesus of Nazareth. And the other thing that's presupposed here is that something went wrong. It doesn't tell us what, what went wrong. It goes straight from creation to reconciliation. But what does that assume? That between creation and reconciliation, something went wrong. Something went wrong with the universe. Somehow, somehow the, uh, God and His creation became estranged, alienated, one from the other, and it doesn't describe what went wrong here. It assumes that the Son took on flesh, and it assumes that, that something went wrong, and He's the solution to that which went wrong. His reconciliation fixes that alienation. And now, moving into this last section, leaving the, the, the poem or the hymn behind, then they take up the letter-writing genre once again in verse 21. And both of these realities, that the Son took on human flesh, and that something had gone wrong, they're spelled out explicitly in this last section. And here, they, they come down from the, the, the heights, and the authors now apply this lesson about the Son, or these lessons about the Son, to the Colossians, and also to us. And so here, it's, it's bringing down to, to our level this cosmic reconciliation plays out in a concrete, visible way in the lives of believers in Jesus Christ. And the story of the Colossians, if you're a believer in Christ, it's your story as well. Because in verse 21, it says, And you all, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil things, He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death. And this is a a familiar structure in the New Testament in Paul's writings. Once, then, but now. Once, then, but now. that That was the Colossians' story. And that's the story of all believers in Jesus. And what was the once? What was the then? It's not a pretty picture, folks. It says, once you were alienated from God. And not only that, you were hostile to God. You were, you were an enemy of God in your mind. You were dead set against Him. And because of that, you were doing evil Deeds, alienated, hostile, doing evil deeds. But then there's the but now. Verse 22, but now he has now reconciled in his body by his death. So, alienated no longer, hostile no longer, doing evil deeds no longer, but rather reconciled by the body of flesh by his death. And here, here we see how... How 
how fleshly he is describing. This is kind of redundant. The body of flesh. The body of flesh. But he's, but he's, he's, he's emphasizing that this is a, a human body. A human body subject to death. A real human body like our human bodies. This, this fullness of God dwelt in, in one of these. Just like this, a fleshly human body that is just like ours. And by His his death and by His resurrection in that real human body, the fullness of God in human flesh reconciled us to God. And what's the purpose here? The purpose is in order to, verse 22 still, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. Holy, blameless, above reproach before Him. Once alienated, hostile, evil. Now, holy, blameless, above reproach before Him. This is judicial language. This is legal language. The idea is presenting a defendant before the judge. But these defendants that Jesus is presenting before the judge... Are, are going to stand before that judge without fear because, because of his death, holy, blameless, above reproach before him. That's the purpose. That we might be, be pre- presented before him without fear, holy, without blemish, without fear because of Jesus' death on the cross. And how did Jesus' death on the cross take care of that that alienation, that hostility, that evil? Well, He took care of it because as one of us, as a human, He took that sentence that we deserve. He he was condemned in the flesh as one of us in our place so that we can stand before God righteous, holy, blameless, and above reproach. Now, all of this, all of this is provided that you continue in the faith. Verse 23, if indeed, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. You see, we're getting some of the first hints about the problem in Colossae, and that is that there were some who had professed Christ, some who had been baptized into Christ and into the church. They were were believers, but they they were moving away. They, they weren't stable in what they had believed. They, they were shifting and they were moving away from Christ. And we'll see some of the ways they were doing that. And so there's this, this, this kind of first shot across the bow of the Colossians. It's saying, all of this is yours. This reconciliation to be, to be holy and blameless before God, provided that you believe this. And not just that at some point in the past you said you believed this, provided that you, this is what you believe, this is, this is the faith that you continue to profess. 
And what is this faith? It's the Gospel, the good news. They, they heard from Epaphras. And that same good news that has been proclaimed in all creation. No other versions of it. It's the same good news preached in all of creation about the death and resurrection of the Son. Now, the purpose of this letter is to bring them back to the Son and keep them there. And that's the purpose for us as well. To bring us back to the Son, if we have moved away, and to keep us right there. It's throughout history, it's been clear that the Christians tend to get embarrassed about two things regarding the Son. And we tend to cave in on a couple of areas with regarding the Son. One of the things that has embarrassed professing Christians throughout the centuries is the full deity of the Son. And when we say that Jesus of Nazareth is the eternal God, we tend to shrink back and say, how could that be? How could that be? And and, and many of the the early heresies, the errors in the church were, were efforts to tweak this. So it, so it didn't sound so, so outrageous, so fantastical. And to, to tone down just a little bit his, his full deity, the fullness of God in Jesus of Nazareth. Because that, that, that seemed like something of an embarrassment, something that would get laughed out of, out of the arena. The other thing that has made Christians uncomfortable and a little embarrassed over the centuries is the full humanity of, of the Son of God. The idea that, that He had flesh and blood and hunger and the same kind of biological experiences that we have, many of the same psychological experiences that we have, that He was as fleshly, as human, as weak in His humanity as we are. And, and that seems to some wrong as well. And so they, they toned down His full humanity. But the problem with, with both of these embarrassments is this. If we tone down His full deity, or if we tone down His full humanity, we no longer have Christianity because we no longer have Christ. We no longer have the One who is presented in all the pages of the New Testament. We have someone created in our image rather than the eternal God who has taken on human flesh to show us what God is like and to redeem us from our alienation. Because God, because the Son, because Christ is God in the flesh, real God, full God, plenitude of God in flesh, real flesh, human flesh, flesh just like ours. If we want to know God, we need to know the Son. If we want to see God, we need to look to Jesus. If we want to go to God and have a relationship with God, we need to go through the Son. Let's pray. Our God, we...
We don't want to lose our nerve. We don't want to lose our faith. As the Colossians were in danger of doing it, as they, they thought about what, what the Gospel says, it, it, seemed, it seemed incredible in some ways. And we've all taken steps back and, and wondered, can this possibly be the true? But then we take another step back and we see that this is, this is the only hope. This is the only way. This is something that we couldn't have made up. This is something that comes from You. And we, we marvel at, at the Son once again today, the agent of creation before all things, in whom, through whom, and for whom all things were made. And we marvel at that same Son who took on the body of flesh just like ours, in whom the fullness of God dwelt, and being God in the flesh, died and rose again. And Lord, we marvel. We marvel once again. And we pray, O God, that You would keep us from being moved. We pray that we would be steady, that we would hold firm to the faith, and that in our beliefs, in our minds, and in our lives, we would always cling to Jesus, that we would always lift up Jesus, because He is our only way to You, and He is Your image for us. And we pray this all in His name. Amen.